Welcome to the Head Shepherd Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Ferguson, CEO at NextGen Agri International, where we help livestock managers to get the best out of their stock. I want to take this opportunity to thank our friends at MSD Animal Health and Allflex for sponsoring Head Shepherd again this season. And I'm also excited to introduce our mates at Heinegger as brand new sponsors of the show. MSD and Allflex, or perhaps better known as Cooper's Animal Health in Australia, offer one of New Zealand and Australia's largest livestock product portfolios with a comprehensive suite of animal health and management products connected through identification, traceability and monitoring solutions. Like us, they see how the wealth and breadth of information born out of this podcast can help them and their farming clients achieve their mission of the science of healthier animals. Heineken will need a little introduction to our audience, a market leader and one-stop shop for wool harvesting and animal fibre removal, together with an expanding range of agricultural products and inputs. The Heineken name is synonymous with quality, reliability and precision. The Heineken team have a deep understanding of livestock agriculture, backed by Swiss engineering and a family business dedicated to manufacturing the best. It's fantastic to have both of these sponsors supporting us in bringing Head Shepherd to you each week. And now it's time to get on with this week's episode. Welcome back to Head Shepherd. Uh, great this week to have a guy I've been following for a while but never met, uh, Will Barton. Welcome along. Thanks, Mark. Great to have you, Will, and uh, yeah, really keen to hear more about Gundagai meat processes. But uh, the Barton name's been involved in the meat business when I started started stalking you for for over 100 years there around Gundagai. It'd be great if you could just share maybe a short version of that story from a butchery apprenticeship through to through to GMP today. Yeah, sure. So my um, my grandfather, Fred Barton, started his butcher's apprenticeship in South Gundagai in, I think, 1919. And he um, he sort of worked away at the trade and, and ended up uh, owning a butcher shop eventually in the main street of town, which is still there today. It's called Smart's Butchery now, different family. And we still process uh, sheep for them on a weekly basis. And in the 70s, when sort of regulation got a little bit tougher for slaughterhouses that were serv- servicing uh, butcher shops. My father, Bill, and my uncle Tony decided to build a, a sort of a small abattoir on the outskirts of Gundagai, which was the makings of GMP, which it started out in uh, 1974 here. And, and we processed beef, pork, and, and lamb and slowly refined it over time to sort of late 90s. We we were lamb only and sheep and lamb only, and that's the way we've been sort of ever since, yeah. Yeah, cool. And we'll get, we'll get into the details, but there have when it's – I know farmers like to build up meat companies, but it's a pretty tough business. There's been lots of meat businesses that have, have come and gone in that time and, uh, yeah, lots that sort of start up with are going to achieve amazing things and, and don't get too far. What's been the underlying philosophy that's contributed to the resilience of GMP? I think I think there's probably a few things. I think it probably starts with the strength of the, of the partnership between my Uncle Tony and my father, Bill. They've been in partnership now, well, next year for 50 years. And they've managed to navigate that together reasonably successfully, um, and probably led with sort of honesty and transparency, and tried to be you know fairly um, level-headed about the way they respond to evolution over time and all those sorts of things. We've they've been a great partnership. We've had another really strong partnership with Coles over the journey. We've done sort of trade with them every week for I think nearly forty years now, in, in different guises and different species and what have you. So I think those partnerships that you develop along the way, you know, become defining for a business and that's certainly been one that's helped define how we've been able to navigate, you know, the ups and downs of, of trade over time, for sure. Yeah, excellent. I guess uh, I guess, GMP probably became, I don't know about a household name, but certainly in the industry once 
uh, with uh, with the IMF and, and being the first to, to offer premiums on, on that front. We've been hearing about IMF and consumer preferences for seemingly decades, probably has been decades. Um, you certainly made headlines when you were the she- first sheep meat processor in Australia and I don't know about the world, I don't follow the world, but certainly anyway, the first I've ever heard of to offer a premium for IMF. Um, can you talk us through the steps that kind of got you to that point? Yeah, it was kind of interesting the way it evolved because, and one of the things I guess you need to understand about our business is that we had a period from 2000 to 2020 where we we weren't trading, so we were a fee-for-service-only plant, so we weren't buying livestock or, or selling meat. And I think that what that meant for us in 2020 when we sort of stuck our head up and decided to launch Gundigai Lamb as a brand was that we had the flexibility to sort of start out as we meant to continue in the sense that we we didn't have to go to an existing group of producers and say, hey, we're going to do this differently. We went to the market and said, hey, we're going to do something different. If you're interested, come with us. And so we've probably been very lucky. I say that I thought it was our biggest competitive disadvantage to not have a supply base when we started, but it's turned out to be the biggest advantage because we haven't had a change management base. We've just said, if, if you like this idea, come with us. And so we're fortunate to have a really good group of producers. We we probably, or I started in the objective measurement journey in sort of 2017 with DEXA, the Lean Meat Yield X-ray system. And we realised a couple of years into the sort of early stages of planning for that, that if we didn't have an eating quality measure to balance the Lean Meat Yield piece, that we were potentially going to end up in a situation where we bred chicken something that grew fast that was, you know, had great lean meat yield and was very efficient from a from a yield point of view, but perhaps didn't wasn't particularly interesting to eat. And so I got very interested probably in 1819, 2018-19 in where we were up to with intramuscular fat measures. And because of the way that we sort our carcasses in the chillers, we need all our measurement to be hot. So I had this we had this hot measurement of lean meat yield that was coming that took years of planning, but it was coming. And we said, well, we need something to keep, you know, we need a guardian of eating quality, if you like, and that needs to be a hot measure for us. And so um, when we came across, I guess, MEQ and started that development journey with them and became kind of their their key site for the development of the model and the machine learning and the, and the artificial intelligence, et cetera, in, in LAM, that became a really key partnership for us as a business. And... Um, so once we had lean meat yield and intramuscular fat together, we thought, okay, this is enough now for us to go to market and start sending signals which are balanced from a lean meat yield as well as an intramuscular fat point of view, which was sort of critical to us. Yeah. Excellent. So another another partnership contributing to success, which is yeah, sure. sounds like it's going to be a common theme, which is which is fantastic. The uh, yeah, and no, obviously we the industry shares the concern that Oh, I was probably fairly vocal against lean meat yield as its own <laughs> own trait because of because of what the risks that was going to do with to both farmers and consumers. Uh, it was only the middle the middle ground, the process that was that was going to get most of the value out of that. So yeah, great to to safeguard eating quality. To obviously, to pay a premium, you need to extract a premium somewhere in the market. So do you differentiate? Is there a Gundagai lamb black label, or is there? Do you how do you differentiate that to to, to find that value? So I think we started our first season, uh, which was sort of broadly, you know, in the Australian financial year since um, 
2020-21, we had a, an intramuscular fat bonus, so we paid a bonus to any lamb carcass that had an intramuscular fat of 5% or greater, and we didn't have a market for it. We just wanted to really intentionally send a market signal to say, if you're, if you're tuned into intramuscular fat or you've been, or you've been selecting for eating quality genetics or paying attention to it, here's, here's a signal of intent, if you like. But the product had no differentiation. It was all just being sold as an Australian, you know, a good old fashioned standard Aussie, Aussie lamb, if you like, into, into typical states, uh, markets like the states. And then, um, and we're also using an algorithm that we've created called the GLQ score, so the Gundigo Lamb Quality Score, and we've now created a, a separate brand, which is GLQ5+, Plus, and that, that allows us to differentiate that product in the marketplace. So we, we call that out. It's got a different packaging and label. So they're both called Gundigo Lamb. One's called Gundigo Lamb GLQ5+, Plus, and that's, um, you know, on this slow, steady build now to recover the bonus that we're paying to farmers for for those for those animals yeah yeah great and i guess that's the the typical cart before the horse and that's the way it has to roll you can't yeah if you haven't got the product you can't get a market for it and if you haven't got a market you can't get the product so someone's has to take that lead and obviously that's what what you chose to do yeah that's it yep so from a practical perspective how do you go about working out which lambs get that premium obviously they get a glq score and that that goes above five, what we've just heard. I guess that's how the... Yeah, well, with, with, it's a little bit, um, as most things are, a little bit more complicated than that, and I'm a huge nerd for it, Mark, so my apologies in advance for, for getting into too much detail if I do, but... I got we, you hardest, mate. We're a lot of nerds listening, so... When we, thanks. When we started, we, we saw, like... So grids were, in Australia, were weight categories and fat scores. There was five fat scores, and we could, and we could sort of broadly separate... Um, you know, unfinished at the lean end at a fat score one, you know, too fat at fat score five. But then we had this sort of two, three, four in the middle. And and it was called a grid, but really some grids had the same price for one, two, three, four, and five scores. I'm yet to see an Australian lamb grid that pays a difference between a fat score two and a four. And it's basically because we don't trust this scale. We might trust it at the extreme end. So like a, a one and a five might get a discount of some kind. So the first thing we did was we said, right, well, we're going to pay less for uh, overfat lambs and we're going to pay more for um, lambs with a better lean meat yield. And then if they get too lean, we're also going to discount that. So we, we sort of started out by saying, well, we need a true representation of the value proposition to us through the boning room. And then the GLQ score is, is more than just intramuscular fat. So it, it's an algorithm that balances... Uh, intramuscular fat percentage, so it encourages high marbling or above average marbling, I should say, rather than high marbling because it's, I hate the tag wagyu of lamb. It, it drives me a little bit crazy. We're not trying to create an insanely well marbled cut of lamb. We're trying to move the average in the positive. We're trying to, you know, safeguard eating quality, if you like, rather than, you know, create a whole new sort of high end category, the wagyu of lamb. So the, the GLQ scores encourages above average marbling, but it also discourages overfattening. So if we're gonna because one of the one of the easiest ways to create marbling is to overfatten something, to overfeed it. And we know that there's a terrible inefficiency in, in producing a kilo of fat versus a kilo of muscle. And and we know that, that that plays well for a producer who's trying to who's who's trying to do the right thing by producing 
you know, a high quality product that's also balanced and it, and it plays really well to the consumer from a, from a sustainability point of view that we're not using grass, grain or any other form of, you know, feed stuff in between to overfatten something. So if we get, if we get a carcass that's got an insane amount of marbling, but it's also got a really low lean meat yield, it won't make GLQ5 plus. Um, because it's knocked out on the basis that it's been unsustainably fattened. Okay. And, and we want producers really to be tuning into the genetics that create that outcome rather than just over-fattening an animal to get there. And then the third element of the GLQ score is uh, animal health. So we track 20 animal health conditions and or carcass defects. Carcass defect things like, um, you know, inocul- inoculation, uh, abscesses or, um, you know, dog bite, crack ribs, those sorts of things. And we take a point off for any of those animal health attributes on a carcass-by-carcass basis that we take a point off the score if they're manageable on farm. So if they're not manageable on farm, then they're noted to the farmer that there's this there's this thing being detected. But if there's like nephritis, which is like a thing in the kidneys, there's nothing, there's no known way to prevent that on farm. So we don't take a point off, we just say it's there. So what it means is that then to to be able to uh, grade the carcasses, you need to be able to say it's got above average eating quality. It's got, um, it's, it's not been done via excessive fattening and, um, the animals either got a clean bill of health or, um, the farmer's been given the feedback to make sure that their disease burden is reduced over time. So it's this kind of holistic improvement approach, I guess, that we're taking with that, with that scoring system, which is, a huge, a huge education piece, both for producers and for the market, and that's sort of this slow burn journey that we're on to to try to to get that across and, and improve things for the better. Yeah, yeah, fantastic, and that's yeah, I had no idea about that. So that's that's great to hear that it's trying to cover all aspects because yeah, you don't want to rightly you don't want to reward a a premium eating experience and ruin ruin the production system in the in the process and uh, yeah no it's awesome to hear that holistic view a quick interruption here to remind you of head shepherd premium and our consulting services at next gen agri international if you love this podcast and want to hear more of them visit the hub.nextgenagri.com and sign up for head shepherd premium and get an extra podcast each week if you're listening to this and thinking you really do want to maximize the genetic gain of your livestock and feel more confident around the decisions you're making on farm, then send me an email at mark at nextinagri.com and we'll get in touch and see see where that takes us. In the premium meat market, carcass utilisation is is really important. You have, you have to pay the premium on the whole carcass generally, but you only get to sell some of those cuts. What's the, what's the market say in terms of is IMF only valued in particular cuts or can you, or is there a premium across all cuts? Well, the... the- there's a huge correlation in, in loins and racks, for instance, as, as those middle cuts that have um, because we measure intramuscular fat in the loin, and so there's a there's a great amount of sort of you know almost direct line to from intramuscular fat measurement to those those two yeah. cuts. Um, we pay at the moment our our bonus our grid bonus is eighty cents per kilo for a GLQ five plus lamb, so we've 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 left the IMF only bonus of 50 cents and convert it into a GLQ score bonus of yeah. 80 cents. Um, I think the thing that, that's been a positive about, so, so it's very easy to sell a highly marbled rack and loin, yeah. you know, relatively easy. Um, legs, uh, certainly a chump, 
responds well in that sense. But because the GLQ score is worth or, or is about more than just eating quality, it's about the sustainable production of the carcass, it's about the, the reduced disease burden over time, it's about good management practices, et cetera, that lead to those outcomes, then we're finding that those other cuts which might not be uh, which might not be leaning into, say, the quality attribute is the reason that you're buying it, for instance. There are consumers that are still willing to pay for a GLQ5 plus grade at shank, for instance, not because the shank is going to necessarily eat better, but because of what the GLQ stands for as a as an overall composition. Um, and so that's been really, uh, I guess, pleasing to get that uh, get that balance and see the see the benefit of those other elements coming through uh, in the marketplace. Yeah, that's awesome. That's that's very clever branding. Whoever came up with that to make sure it was more than more than just one attribute. So, yeah. The, um, Obviously, I mean, one of the things that we're getting off script a bit, but one of the things that has always seemed simple to me, but I've never run a <laughs> never run an abattoir, but hook tracking is obviously seems like it's been a real battle for the industry. Obviously, you've got that sorted. If if you're being able to pay a premium on individual lambs, you're you're pretty accurate with tracking what's going through and going where. Yeah, we are. We we we've, we've had some um we, we've had some we've had some things that have made it it a an easier journey for us, but that, that's not to say that there wasn't hard work. But we we built a system so our our carcasses move through our chiller system, and they're never pushed by a human. So they're all driven by a hook in either walking beam scenarios or individual um, indexing of carcasses and, and sort of chains, etc. And that and and things like the GLQ score. Um, can only work if we're able to accurately capture capture animal health at the evisceration table uh, weight over the scales. Uh, the the MEQ probe gives us intramuscular fat, the Dexter X-ray unit. So all of those things are feeding into the, the hook tracking system. But then importantly, the the carcasses can't actually move through our chiller system unless the RFID is read and live, because then it doesn't know where to put it or which way to go. Yeah, cool. And so yeah. that created huge amounts of initial pain. Yeah, I imagine. But they were pain, it was pain that stopped the plant. Yeah. And so there was just this requirement to fix it or, or move yeah. through it. So we went through that pain in kind of 18, 19 years as we commissioned that chiller system and it meant that we probably didn't realise it at the time, but it meant that our our, our we've got incredibly uh, talented electrical team that are, you know, PLC programming and all that sort of stuff is part of their toolkit they're, they're well educated and, and do a great job we've got a really committed maintenance team and so it's all that stuff that happens behind the scenes in to make sure those things are working and then once they're solved up front then they're kind of solved forever whereas i think in a lot of cases when you're commissioning tech and certainly on plant for us when we're commissioning tech if you can bypass it because you've got a certain number of units to process that day and chain speed and labour productivity and there's shortages of labour and all these other things that are going on. If you can bypass it, you will. Yeah, that's the we human. We couldn't bypass our hook tracking system, so we just had to make it work. And, yeah. um, and so we've been fortunate that, it, that hook tracking does work here and it works at sort of 99.9% rate because if it doesn't, then we create all sorts of belly aches for ourselves in our in our chiller system before we get to the boning room. So... Um, you know, a bit of good luck there in terms of giving us all the heartache up front and, and having to solve it. Um, but it is, 
once you've got it in place, the power of the data that it creates is quite extraordinary. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Yeah. I don't think you've felt, not that I've, I've been there, but I don't think you've felt pressure until you've been responsible for stopping a chain. That's, that's real pressure. It is, it is very real. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's bad yeah. enough in a shearing team with five or six where you stop, but you stop a whole, uh, yeah, several yeah. people. At, at, uh, <laughs> a few and, people and watching. Never do it on a Friday, Mark. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, excellent. Um, the quote—I think it was from Niels Bohr—that quoted prediction is difficult, particularly about the future. Um, I guess what trends are you seeing at the moment that you think will impact on lamb and mutton? It's been a—it's been a maybe a tougher period for in the last, in comparison, to the last few years. The last few months have been have been a bit tough. Are you are you seeing any any changes in the market? Oh, I think. If you sort of go all the way up to 30,000 feet and, and look down, I think we've had this period of abnormal trade through COVID where, where product was sort of flowed through the supply chain relatively quickly in, in a meat context because it was there was a huge amount of demand and and concern around running out and, and, and supply chain issues and what have you. I think so at one level I think we're just seeing a normalisation or a sort of a settling of markets into the normal patterns that, that they sort of roll to. Um, from a sheep meat sales point of view, for sure. I think that the other kind of key themes are that you've got sort of a, an increasing flock size in Australia, which is really um, great for industry, but also obviously um, becomes a challenge against sort of ongoing constraints around uh, processing capacity, you know, labour challenges. And also if you're if you're a processor and maybe you had a plan to, you know, extend part of your plant, um you know, to accommodate an extra ten percent or, or do something like that, the the price tag on that on that little expansion has has blown out considerably with steel prices and and on all the other things that sort of go around what is already a fairly uh, capital intensive um, sort of stage of the supply chain that, that processing. So I think the those themes of markets normalising, as in end markets normalising, uh, increased. Uh, supply against processing challenge is probably creates a few head, headwinds for livestock pricing. And I think what that, what our kind of thesis has always been is that you can't, you can't continue to sell lamb to the world as though every single one of them is perfect and it's going to be brilliant. And so we've got an obligation, as I said, as a processor that's funneling, uh, you know, many thousands tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lambs through one aggregation point to make sure that we're, our prices are high enough that a producer wants to continue to choose lamb or sheep and lamb. In our district, you can grow cattle, you can grow uh, sheep, you can grow crops, you can go into horticulture if it, if it pleases you. And so if we're going to keep attracting numbers through our plan, we need to make sure that people are motivated to produce sheep. Um, animal handlers have been amazing to sort of reduce a bit of the labour burden on what is a fairly intensive kind of, um, you know, yard work, et cetera, that I think is for some ageing farmers has become a bit of a barrier. Shearing we still need to solve um, in terms of how we manage to keep up with those those demands on labour, et cetera. But on plant, I think our responsibility is to make sure we can grade livestock on on quality and send really clear signals about quality so that we can continue to pay premiums for people that are doing a good job. Um, and and the 
the sort of the ungraded or the lower lower end of the quality scale probably continues to bounce up and down in a commodity cycle that is sometimes favourable and sometimes not. So I would think that um, from a from a macro point of view, I'd hope in five years' time we would say that the producers that supply us have been well rewarded for producing a quality article through um, through commodity cycles at a relatively consistent high price, such that they're in, they're incentivised to keep keep making that enterprise decision on farm. Um, but certainly, increasing flock size, constraint processing capacity is going to be the same for the next sort of two or three years, I would imagine. Yeah, just just on those producers. Obviously, you're you've invested in your. I think it's the founders group that I'm catching up with in a couple of weeks. The oh, obviously the pioneers. Yeah, pioneers, pioneers. Sorry, I was yeah. thinking, looking for the word pioneers is yeah. kind of like founders. The um, obviously your yeah, you've part of your thesis is to work closely with those locals and and sort of make sure that neither side of the equation is getting too far off kilter. Yeah, I mean, I think there's. What we when we started out, we kind of thought we're a processor. We don't we don't like we need to tell tell people what they sent us, which we do in, in, in as rich detail as you'll find anywhere in a in a um, in a sheep meat supply chain globally. Uh, and then we need to tell them what they what we want them to send us, which is using price. But but we don't necessarily think we're going to dabble in how. Um, and I and and I mean how from a from a breed a genetic feed all of these variables that, that producers have um, I guess in their kit bag to to try to achieve the outcomes we're a very outcomes focused um, I, I, don't, I don't want to anoint an Angus type yeah, situation right. in, in this you know but we, we see that the variation is there that you can pretty much have any breed that you like and achieve um, the outcomes if you follow the right genetics and then match those genetics with the right nutritional sort of platform and, and you'll get where you need to go and so I think that the pioneers program is sort of a reflection of this realization that you can't just completely leave producers to it there needs to be some sort of organization of thinking a platform for networking and sharing that that we have a role in in perhaps uh, organizing but not necessarily um you, like I don't think we're going to turn into agronomists and geneticists and all those other things we've just got to make sure that we're we're assisting those forward-thinking farmers in sort of getting the information to them and, and providing a, an environment where they can access the right sort of information and, and, and sort of share their journeys. And so that's kind of an exciting next step for us as we, you know, continue to try to move in the right direction, I guess. Yeah, and, I, and ultimately it's about information transfer. It's like we've our greatest challenge in ag is the fact that, yeah, the supply chain has been disjointed and, and 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 initiatives like yours is obviously bringing that much closer which just just got huge power for people to understand what consumers actually want and understand that that the things that happen on farm are actually really important for consumers not just what that product tastes like but the fact that if it has been it had a healthy life and it's had a, a stress-free life and all the other aspects that the consumers care about so connecting those yeah, I've always since since moving to New Zealand and working with New Zealand Marina Company, I've been much more aware of the need to to get that a really tight conversation between the the two ends of the spectrum at, at consumer and farm level, and and everyone in between being in that tight loop of communication. So it's awesome to hear that's that's where you're heading. Yeah, 
Thanks. The uh, sometimes in life it's it's good to be the second mouse to the trap. You've obviously decided to lead the industry on intramuscular fat IMF. With the benefit of hindsight, would you do anything differently, or or was all the learning necessary to get where you got? Uh, I think I don't know that we would do anything differently. I think that we've um, that we've had these periods of indecision and sort of and and I'm I'm a relatively impatient person because I'm excited about what um, what all these things can bring to industry and to our business and to our, our, our local producer community. But I think and, and so if I reflect and say would I do anything differently, maybe I'd say I'd try to be more patient. But then I think if you've got a way of harnessing impatience and using it to your advantage, it actually, you know, it can create good outcomes for you. So um, I think I think maybe I would have started a bit earlier because I think the I think it's less about necessarily knowing where it's going to end up and more about just starting and, and taking that first step and, and saying, okay, well, um, this isn't perfect, but it's a start. And I think we were, I guess I'm, I'm happy that in our early communications with people, we, we sort of said for the first year and we still say we don't have all the answers, but we are willing to ask the, the questions and we're happy to do it with you and we'll tell you whatever you want to ask us about and and I think that's been part of the, I guess, the, the success of the initial following of the brand has been that, that we've been kind of upfront about that and transparent and said, look, we, we don't really know, but we're willing to ask questions and anyone that wants to come along and, and sort of engage with along the way, we think it's going to be pretty interesting and we think it's perhaps going to be the future of the way the industry goes. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think I'd do anything differently really per se. Um, it's not to say we haven't made any mistakes, Mark, but, but I think they were all necessary. Yeah, fantastic. And I think I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of this episode, but one thing I would like people to make sure they listen to was that that statement then around like the power of now, I guess, the power of everyone and me included. The only thing I get, if I get asked that, that same question, my answer is I would have done it earlier. And I think that's pretty much almost always the case, um, building jumping out of the plane and or whatever, jumping off a cliff and building the plane as you as you fall is is kind of the only way the innovation happens and and yeah, a lot of people wait for the perfect day or the perfect time and it just never rolls. So you just have to have to take the leap at the end of the day. For sure. That's been a, a really, really great chat. Thanks, Will. The on a I guess to move off G and P and on to on to you as as an individual, is there any strategies that you use to keep yourself performing at a at a high level? Um, I think probably uh, I, I'm like a lot of people. I'm exceptionally for, fortunate to be doing something that I really really love, and I think that the saying you know do something you love and you'll never work a day in your life is is, is very true. I think the ability to be able to to find that, and I know it's not possible for everyone, but but certainly. That, that's motivated me. I think probably is um, as time's gone on, one thing that really keeps me motivated is having sort of younger and in some ways smarter people uh, around you uh, in your business that are sort of learning and pushing and thinking differently is a really way to stay, I guess, sharp about perspective and, and kind of where the job's up to. So, um I think that's a real motivator for me is is 
both seeing what, what we've achieved to date, but also the sort of what the future might look like by virtue of having, you know, younger and enthusiastic people in the business that are, that are pushing along. Um, yeah, but I'm not, I don't run marathons or, um, or anything. Or anything exciting like that, Mark. Pretty <laughs> <laughs> I can see some white gum boots in the back, so you obviously end up out in the kill floor a bit. But... <laughs> yeah, excellent. The uh, now that's been fantastic, Will, and I'm really looking forward to actually shaking your hand. In I think by the time this goes to air, we might have already done that at, at Karen Pole at the T90 day. But um, but yeah, no, really appreciate your time today, and and all the best for. For the future, we're looking forward to seeing what innovations come down the line from, from GMP and, and look forward to what the, the next 100 years looks like. Yeah, very good. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Thanks again to our mates at Heinegger who are proud world leaders in the manufacturing and supply professional sheep shearing and clipping equipment. They understand that their customers rely on the quality and performance of their products each and every day. Also, thanks to our friends at MSD Animal Health and Orflex. They offer an extensive livestock product portfolio focused on animal health and management all backed up by exceptional service. Both of these companies are wonderful supporters of the Australian and New Zealand livestock industries and we thank them for sponsoring the Head Shepherd podcast.